It's July 13, 2016, and it is time for another Evolution Medicine podcast. This is podcast number three, uh, and the topic of today's podcast is Evolution Meets Evidence-Based Medicine, and this podcast is based on a presentation I gave at last month's International Society for Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health Conference. Again, I'm Joe Alcock, and welcome. So last week we talked about an evolutionary hypothesis uh, regarding um, sepsis physiology and the case of Zygris, a medication that ultimately did not work. And uh, I explained in last week's podcast how uh, this case of Zygris's ultimate failure after 10 years and over a thousand uh, published papers, uh, but its failure is consistent with some precepts of evolutionary medicine. Today we're going to talk about <clears throat> a similar idea, uh, which illustrates the main point of today's podcast, and that is that the movement of evidence-based medicine, <clears throat> or EBM, oftentimes it dovetails with predictions of evolutionary medicine. So, so EBM, or evidence-based medicine, it's a movement in medical science that's taken uh, made a lot of progress in the last uh, couple dec decades. And it makes recommendations uh, for both patient diagnosis and patient treatment based on best evidence provided by clinical trials, observational trials, uh, systemic, systematic reviews, and the like. And I'll put an image on the uh, show notes showing kind of the hierarchy of evidence uh, with a sort of the base of a pyramid um, consisting of randomized controlled trials, and those are some of the best kinds of evidence. And then systematic reviews on the top, ideally systematic reviews of a lot of randomized controlled trials. So evidence-based medicine weighs both benefits and harms and looks at, for any given diagnostic modality, any given treatment, whether the benefits exceed the harms. If the harms exceed the benefits, then we shouldn't do it. Uh, and there are a number of you know, recently discarded treatments and interventions that evidence-based medicine has played a large role in rejecting. If, on the other hand, benefits exceed the harms, then we might continue with uh, the treatment or the therapy or the diagnostic modality, depending on you know, other considerations, like whether it makes economic sense or makes sense for public health uh, or for an individual patient's health. So a good example of where we see a recent application of evidence-based medicine is in the area of antibiotics. So I use a lot of antibiotics in my practice uh, with my eyes wide open as to their risks and benefits. And there have been recent studies suggesting that we don't need to use antibiotics for uh, simple self-limited infections. If, if an infection is going to go away on its own, then using an antibiotic has a great potential to do more harm than good. So a good example of this is uh, children with ear infections. And ear infections, even if they are bacterial middle ear infections or otitis media, they oftentimes are a self-limited infection and they will go away on their own. Antibiotics should, you know, I, I still use them, so I can't, I'm not, I'm not a 100% a you know, anti-antibiotics here, but 
evidence suggests that in, in certain selected cases, antibiotics do more harm than good. They cause more side effects, for instance, diarrhea, you know, stomach upset. Uh, worst case scenario would be allergy to the antibiotic. And I've started to talk to patients now about uh, some of the potential downsides of antibiotics that we're learning are derived from antibiotic effects on the microbiome. So for instance, uh, there's great work that now points towards antibiotics causing later weight gain and obesity. So if antibiotics given to a seven-year-old child with an ear infection, if that's going to contribute to that child's overweight, obesity, potential diabetes later on in life, then we shouldn't do it. And that's you know, evidence that we're still waiting to be completely fleshed out, but there are there's evidence in the literature and the signals are pointing towards a potential harm in that area as well. So antibiotics are an area in which evidence-based medicine has suggested that we should withhold their use in many cases, or at least have a discussion and engage the parents in uh, joint decision-making with a honest discussion of both the risks and the benefits. Today, we're going to talk mostly about opioids. If there's a potential problem with the use of antibiotics, and we'll, we'll save you know, antibiotics for its own podcast uh, coming up in the next week or so, but today I want to talk about another problem. And this is the problem of opioid pres prescribing. I had to look this up because it was so amazing to me, but it's been reported that hydrocodone, the main ingredient in the brand name medication Vicodin, is among the most prescribed medications used in North America. And according to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and this is year 2013, hydrocodone was the, the most prescribed medication based on uh, prescriber numbers and beneficiary counts. So you can, you, know, you can look at most prescribed medication in different ways. Uh, if you look at it in terms of costs of medications, there are others that come up on top. If you look at it in terms of you know, sheer uh, numbers of prescriptions, those that other med medications, thyroid medications, for instance, uh, may uh, outweigh the number of Vicodin tabs. But in terms of individual beneficiaries, hydrocodone comes up number one according to Medicare and Medicaid services. This is a heavily prescribed medication, Vicodin. And of course, it has a huge potential for both diversion and abuse. These are real problems. And this is something which has changed since I've become a doctor. This, of course, people have been abusing drugs of abuse, including opioids and, uh, their, uh, and opiates, which include things like codeine and morphine. Those are natural products. Heroin, of course, is one too. Uh, but the synthetic things, which we'll call opioids, hydrocodone, oxycodone, oxycontin, these are problematic, um, as are, the, are the, the whole class of medications, because of their potential for abuse. And just to kind of wind back a little bit, so I've been practicing now, um, well, next year, 2017, will mark uh, my 20th anniversary of getting my MD, meaning that I will have practiced medicine both in training and as an attending uh, over that 20-year period, and I've seen changes in how we deal with pain and how we deal with opioid prescribing. And I've had some personal experience with, uh, with painful conditions, and I've been prescribed these things. But you know, as a prescriber, 
what we were taught in medical school and shortly after was that there was an epidemic of undertreatment of pain and that we really needed to spend more time you know, making sure that our patients' pain complaints were addressed. This was a major concern of accrediting organizations like the Joint Commission of Hospitals. And it turns out that pharmaceutical companies, by and large, the drug companies were driving much of this interest in undertreatment of pain. So just like if you remember from the last week's podcast, how Eli Lilly formed the Surviving Sepsis Campaign and came up with a task force for ethics and rationing in healthcare with essentially the sole purpose of promoting their drug, Zygris, which was ineffective and harmed more people than it helped. I think you can make the same argument about the drug companies that are manufacturing brand name medications like Oxycontin or Vicodin. And it turns out that there's great evidence that that's true. The profit made on these medications is massive and its widespread use is a profit center for uh, big drug companies. Having said that, pain is real, and having just condemned opioids and antibiotics in the name of evidence-based medicine, I should point out that they are among the most potent and powerful medications, and they're widely prescribed for a reason. So the things that we can do for a patient that comes into the ER that really make a difference, I would say they oftentimes fall into those categories. So if you have a bacterial infection, we can prescribe antibiotics and we can make you better most of the time. If someone comes up with a painful complaint, we can treat you with an opioid and improve outcomes in terms of pain. Uh, Long-term outcomes and diversion and addiction and all the things that go along with that, well, that's a different story. So we're going to talk about that uh, a bit more. Um, but I just, I need to point out that, that these are potent medications that really work. Their overuse is a real problem, but they're used for a reason. So let's take a step back. And again, the title of this podcast is Evolution Meets Evidence-Based Medicine. So let's, let's just examine what, you know, what's the purpose of pain? And there have been, uh, reports of, Babies born without the capacity to feel pain with various defects in the pain pathway. And those kids oftentimes don't do well. They, they rarely survive to adulthood because of injuries and you know, lack of awareness of uh, painful conditions that gets, get them into trouble. And for the rare children that do make it into adulthood, oftentimes crippling arthritis and other chronic diseases from injury and failure to change behavior in response to pain have resulted. So these kids that are born without the capacity to feel pain are severely handicapped. And that suggests that pain serves a function. So Randy Nessie uh, published a paper on the idea of the smoke detector principle. Uh, I forget what his original, uh, this original idea was published, but uh, one of one version was published in Evolution and Human Behavior in 2005, and it highlights the idea that we have danger detection modules in our body. So we have evolved a capacity to feel aversive symptoms, things like pain, things like anxiety, uh, things like you know having uh, foul odors, etc. And these 
features that we perceive as being harmful or unpleasant, and we oftentimes seek medical care for them, they serve a function, an evolved function, and they keep us safe. And Randy Nessie's insight was that sometimes the danger detection can appear to be undergoing a lot of false alarms. And so this would be equivalent to having a smoke detector in your house. And he argues that it's better to have a smoke detector within that already has a built-in capacity for frequent false alarms. So the idea is that you'd rather have it go off when you burn toast in your toaster than have it not go off when you're having a real fire and you're asleep in your bed. So we, we tolerate, with smoke detectors in our homes, false alarms. And in fact, if you were to optimally tune the sensitivity of a smoke, smoke detector, you would expect that there would be multiple false alarms. So the same perhaps goes for pain, anxiety, and other aversive symptoms that oftentimes we experience pain or fear or anxiety, sometimes when there's no apparent threat. And that might re represent the optimal tuning of those modules that are threat detectors that have evolved by natural selection. And this may explain why sometimes pain can appear out of control or why people suffer anxiety disorders and the like. So having said that, you know, kids that can't feel pain suffer terribly and often die an early death, and they suffer, of course, without experiencing physical pain, the smoke detector principle suggests that natural selection has left us with bodies that experience pain that we experience as horrible, suffering, and aversive symptoms that may actually represent an optimal tuning of that system, at least by natural selection. And this brings us to the brain. If you look at a pathway of pain that involves nociceptors that detect painful stimuli in your, in your uh, skin and other tissues, uh, and the whole cascade of substance P and neural transmission and uh, sympathetic nervous activity that conveys signals to your brain, it turns out that your brain is a, has a big and important function in terms of both the perception of pain and how we respond to it, and also we find that certainly in clinical medicine, that what we think of pain reveals that the brain can either amplify or diminish um, painful stimuli in, in our bodies. So in other words, the brain is as important and perhaps more so in the perception of pain than the rest of the whole pain system uh, combined. But your brain also is, has evolved to provide benefits to your body. And the brain is, is another product of natural selection. So we, again, we might expect that in general, on a population level, that most people, in terms of their brain's perception of pain, that that's gonna, that will have reflected some optimum with regard to natural selection in the past. We'll see if that's true, but these are a couple of evolutionary concepts. So again, pain has a function. Sometimes we may experience excessive pain as a result of the smoke detector principle, and our brains are important in the perception of pain. It's not just a simple uh, machine in which you know, an untuned machine can be fixed with medications like opioids. So let's talk about opioids. There was a recent piece in the New York Times. This was published in January 7th, uh, 2016, and it looked at drug overdose deaths in the United States uh, since the year 2003 to 2014. Um, I'll refer you to this image on the website. Suffice to say that 
Overdose deaths have been increasing in almost every region of the country, reaching epidemic proportions in much of the western U.S., uh, Appalachia, uh, and along the coasts. So there's huge swaths of the country in which overdose deaths have increased markedly to the point where they're exceeding 20 overdose deaths per 100,000. So we're dealing with a real problem here. And who's to blame? Am I to blame as a physician? I would say yes, I bear some of the blame. The society to blame in terms of an expectation that uh, pain is always to be treated. Patients come in expecting relief from pain. Yes, society uh, plays a role. But really, if you, if you get right down to it, there's work published by the, by the DEA, DEA and the uh, report of, uh, from the National Vital Statistics System, 1999 through 2008, showing that, in effect, deaths from opioids simply reflect sales of opioids. So the rates of prescription painkiller sales trends in exactly the same direction as the rates of death. So the more we use of this stuff, the more deaths we're going to get. And overdoses are a big part of this. So I asked, you know, am I, am I part of the problem? And I would, I would argue that as an emergency physician, we see patients with pain and we prescribe opioids. And yes, we in the ER are part of this problem. A paper published in Academic Emergency Medicine just uh, this year showed that there has been rising opioid prescribing in U.S. emergency department visits from 2001 to, till 2010, and really a marked increase. What's kind of remarkable to me is that there was a six-fold increase in prescriptions for hydromorphone. That, that, that's commonly known as Dilaudid. Dilaudid, when I was in training, was a medication we reserved just for the most sickest patients dying of cancer, bone cancer pain. And in effect, I went for just about a decade without ever using this stuff. Now it is, the things have changed. Both medicine and society, Dilaudid has increased sixfold in, uh, the, in emergency medicine prescribing and elsewhere. And patients have learned to expect this medication. Why? Because it produces a euphoria and it's more potent than many of the, uh, many of the alternative medications. So patients will say they're allergic to all other opioids except for Dilaudid. When that happens, we have a pretty good indication they're probably uh, dependent on it and uh, possibly addicted and possibly drug-seeking. But even for those that aren't, if we ignore the problem of diversion, which happens, you know, kids taking medications from uh, their uh, parents' prescription at its most benign, um, there are organized drug rings in which uh, fake patients get prescriptions from unethical physicians. Uh, there was a case in the LA Times just a couple days ago outlining a massive OxyContin prescribing ring. So diversion is a massive problem, but even when it's used exactly according to its intent. For a patient with an honest-to-God pain problem, we find that long-acting opioids uh, kill people, and it's not all from overdose deaths. So this, this is work published in JAMA just last month. The title of the paper is Prescription of Long-Acting Opioids and Mortality in Patients with Chronic Non-Cancer Pain. And these patients that were prescribed opioids, the hazard of death was 1.64, uh, increased hazard ratio. So their, their likelihood of, of death uh, was higher in the opioid group. The hazard ratio within the first 30 days of treatment with these long-acting opioids was over four. So a four times increased risk of death. 
they examined this. Uh, this is a study looking at over 22,000 new prescriptions. And these are patients that had many long-acting opioids. And they, they calculate that there were 200 excess deaths for 10,000 person years. So 200 deaths for 10,000 person years in patients prescribed opioids. Kind of remarkably, many of the deaths were not from overdose, they were for things like heart attacks. So it suggests that opioids interfere with other parts of the body's functioning and may increase deaths from other sources, which is scary, and I don't think most physicians take this into account. All right, so I promised you we were gonna talk about both uh, you know, evolution and evidence base. So we're gonna go, go over a case, and this is a common case. Let's imagine that a 34-year-old patient comes in to the ER. They're otherwise healthy. They report having been in a car accident uh, five years ago. They say they've had intermittent episodes of severe incapacitating back pain. They report some pain rating down their legs and difficulty walking. Uh, they're crying when you come in and see them and examine them. You do an examination and reveal uh, normal neurological status, so the nerves are working okay, and let's imagine you do some imaging tests and those come back looking normal too. So your diagnosis is musculoskeletal pain, and what do you do for this person? Many, many times, and in fact I've done this myself, we prescribe opioids for musculoskeletal pain. So luckily for us, there have been at least a couple of studies looking at the evidence for this. And one that I found recently was uh, published in the Annals of Internal Medicine by Martel and colleagues. And this was a meta-analysis that looked at four studies. Uh, luckily, these were, these were randomized controlled trials. And no benefit was found in the patients prescribed opioids compared to non-opioids or placebo. So there was no benefit found in terms of long-term outcome or, or pain relief. And they found aberrant medicine-taking behavior in 24%. So a quarter had some altered medicine-taking behavior. This is a proxy measure for uh, early substance abuse or dependence. It's thought to potentially lead to those problems later on. So here we have an intervention which doesn't work, and it causes a high risk of possible substance abuse down the line. So in this study and others, the number needed to harm, which is uh, calculated to figure out in terms of how many prescriptions are we gonna end up actually hurting people, the number needed to harm in terms of opioid abuse and dependence with a new high dose prescription is 16.7. So we can prescribe about 17 prescriptions and one is going to end up with opioid abuse and dependence according uh, to this study. If you look at death by long acting opioids, in the previous JAMA study that I referenced, the number needed to harm is about 150. And we see far more addiction, drug-seeking behavior, and diversion. So this drug doesn't work for back pain. This drug causes harm. We shouldn't use it. And it seems to me that this is an area in which, so the evolutionary idea is that uh, we have evolved a pain system for a reason, uh, the, the simple, kind of simplistic idea that if someone's in pain, we should give them powerful medications to reduce their pain that may have some immediate effects, but have performed badly in terms of long-term relief, that that idea really needs, those two ideas need to be merged. My point of view on this is that in general, and especially in other countries, in Japan, uh, for instance, in New Zealand, where far fewer narcotic and opioid prescriptions are, are done, in fact, Hydrocodone is illegal in Japan, as I understand it. 
uh, people are, are treated differently with pain. The expectation for uh, how pain is dealt with at a society level and in medicine is also different. But a key evolutionary implication, uh, which I think is relevant here, is that these drugs, they don't work in the long term. And in fact, they can exacerbate or even make pain, com pain complaints worse in our patients. And this is uh, known as opioid hyperalgesia. So the idea that patients experience more pain that the longer they've been on uh, opioids and you have to have an ever-increasing dose. And that ever having to treat people with higher and higher doses of opioids to achieve the same level of pain control, that's called tach tachyphylaxis. And the problem is that this becomes extremely dangerous. When patients require high doses of these long-acting medications, oftentimes their risk of death is uh, just unacceptably high. And it won't take very much to make them stop breathing. So that's a problem. So what's up with this tachyphylaxis? In my view, tachyphylaxis and hyperalgesia represents a calibration of the way your brain interprets pain as well as how pain receptors function with the view that pain serves a function and is adaptive for the organism. So when we're taking these medications that suppress this functional and adaptive system, the body responds uh, by increasing the perception of pain at, in terms of the central nervous system and increasing transmission of pain at the periphery. So we get higher pain perceptions with a otherwise innocuous stimulus. So the remarkable thing that I see in the ER is that patients that have abused heroin, they come in and they scream when we put in a you know an IV. So with something that most people can tolerate with minimal pain, it is genuinely painful for some of these patients, even though, though they stick themselves with needles routinely. So this is an example of this opioid-induced hyperalgesia. This, as far as I know, I haven't seen any, any uh, articles describing this hyperalgesia and tachyphylaxis as an adaptive phenomenon, but it begs the question whether the body does regulate the perception of pain in a way that preserves the body's capacity to feel pain and that our attempts to completely mask it by using opioids can sometimes be, and often are, counterproductive. So again, number needed to harm, not insignificant for opioids. We should prob probably not be using these medications. So what we learn from the evidence dovetails quite nicely with uh, some evolutionary thinking about the function of having a pain system in the body and the idea that this is regulated uh, you know, from a history of natural selection acting on uh, the perception of pain in the body. And I would argue that it's not just opioids that are the problem. Uh, a paper published in JAMA Psychiatry just last month, just a few days ago, June 22nd, uh, Bursu and colleagues have shown that stimulant medication is also on the, on the rise in, in, kind of, in a remarkable way. So we see a massive increase in things like Adderall, uh, amphetamine use uh, prescribed to children. The peak really is at the age of about 10 and 11, mostly in boys, but also in women. And we see a massive increase in older age groups too. So there's controversy about whether patients that are adults can have a different phenomenon of, uh, this is for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD. Uh, but the bottom line is that this diagnosis has prompted a massive increase in stimulant prescribing. Again, these are powerful medications that affect the CNS. I'm not gonna you know, argue that some, of, some patients with ADHD 
aren't suffering, of course they are, and its use is oftentimes appropriate, but we have to wonder whether this massive increase makes sense, uh, that optimal functioning would require uh, an exogenous stimulant, a powerful stimulant like amphetamine for quote-unquote normal functioning of the brain. It raises some interesting questions about why that would be, and I would argue that we're going to find more and more that this massive increase in stimulant use is going to have a variety of untoward consequences. So a couple of examples looking at evidence-based medicine and evolutionary medicine. I hope to actually have a series of uh, talks uh, on this topic, but I'm going to make one final point in this podcast before we call it quits. And that's the idea that just because something is supported by evidence doesn't mean that doctors are going to immediately start using it. It's thought to have taken you know, over 10 years for physicians to start using aspirin uh, for heart attacks. It's, a, it's an amazingly effective medication and evidence absolutely supported its, its use. Uh, before the days of angioplasty and using stents to open up um, uh, arteries in patients with heart attacks, we had other medications that were clot-busting clot drugs. These were things like streptokinase, and it took years and years in many studies before those medications were used at the levels where they were, where the evidence supported they should be. So evidence can sometimes support the use of a medication and then it, things don't change. Right now we're in a situation where evidence really supports the idea that we are abusing some medications like opioids, and we are prescribing them far too often. And so this has prompted uh, a couple of campaigns, like the Less is More campaign, the Choosing Wisely campaign, uh, that have pointed out that oftentimes we, we use too much medicine, and patients would be far better served if we used less. So I, I'm going to just leave with the idea that if evolutionary biology and some of these evolutionary ideas can help reinforce evidence-based medicine so that this uh, 10 or 17 year old la year lag between evidence and change in practice, if that's shortened in a way, then I think that evolutionary medicine will have, uh, just by that, that will be a, a useful uh, service uh, for the medical community and for patients. So faster adoption of evidence-based medicine uh, by adopting an evolutionary medicine lens. And with that, I'll sign off and have a great week.